James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, hear olives, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, as we've read this passage of Scripture now, we would ask that you would instruct us in your holy word. That, Lord, you would give us understanding and clarity to grasp all that is intended to be said to us this morning. Lord, we pray that these words would not only be informative for us, but that they would prove to be transformative for the way that we utilize our words and our speech, for the way that we consider leaders in the church. Lord, we pray that this would transform us and our understanding and our actions. So God, please minister to us through your word. And Lord, more than anything, we pray that even in this text, where Jesus is not being pointed to specifically, that we would still come to see what a wonderful Savior that Christ is. And we ask this now in His name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, when I was in elementary school, we had a saying about our words. Let's see if you can finish it for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, that sounds nice. Or did I say it wrong? Oh, okay. I was like, wait, did I mess up? Hold on. They're laughing at me in the back. Um, so that's that saying, it sounds nice and we teach it to children, but it's only half the truth. Because certainly sticks and stones might break your bones, but words can deeply wound people. In fact, we all know from experience that, that words can become more destructive or more damaging in a person's life, oftentimes, than even physical violence. Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I mean, think of how heavy that is, how weighty that is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
Here we have this truth being reinforced for us from James chapter 3, the New Testament wisdom literature. This idea of the immense power of human speech. Now, in the book of James, we're moving into our third major section of the book. We've broken the book up into four main sections. Um, We'll put it on the screen here. You'll see our breakdown. We started with the testing of faith in chapter 1, and then we've been teaching recently about hearing and doing the Word up through the end of chapter 2. And now we're in the third major section that we've titled, Trouble in the Community. Trouble in the Community. And this morning, we're going to talk about bad leaders and bad words. Bad leaders and bad words. The churches that James is writing to are filled with Jewish Christian converts who are facing trials from without, trials from outside of the church. Things like extreme poverty, things like oppression from the rich and the powerful, things like direct persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. So they've got these trials from the outside that are bearing down on them. But then as we've discussed, these believers also have trials from within that they're struggling with. Temptations to doubt God and His goodness and His plan for them. Temptations to give in to various types of sins. And James has been calling on these Christians up to this point. To live lives that are consistent with their faith. To practice what he called in chapter 1, true religion. To be doers of the word, not just hearers. Or as we talked about last week, to show their faith through their works. And now, as we shift gears to this third section of the book, James begins addressing trouble that is brewing in the community. He begins with a particular problem, and it's the problem of people jockeying for leadership positions in the church, specifically to be teachers in the churches. And he warns them against something in verse 1, namely that not many in the church should become teachers. Now, why is that the case? Why shouldn't many become teachers? Well, the answer will become clear for us in this text. There's a problem with the motives of these individuals and also with their qualifications. Now, at this time, Jewish rabbis were held in very high honor. If you had a father who was a rabbi, that was a very prestigious thing. Or if you were a parent and maybe your son was training to be a rabbi, that, again, was a very prestigious thing. And the community, the Jewish community, would look on your family with a lot of esteem and a lot of honor. And so as Jews became Christians, and the synagogue was replaced by the church, and the position of rabbi was replaced by pastor-teacher, well, the high honor that these Jews bestowed on their rabbis naturally shifted over now to the teachers and the preachers in the local churches. And therefore, the role of teacher in the context of early Jewish Christianity was definitely a coveted one. And so James here again, he's warning, he's saying that there are many who are evidently jockeying for and seeking out this role that should not become teachers. Now, is there something inherently wrong with being a teacher or being a leader in a church? I sure hope not, because I'd be in trouble. Uh, Consider the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 3.1. 
The Apostle Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He doesn't say he desires an evil task. He desires a noble task. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a person sitting there and saying, you know what, I would love to teach God's word. Or I would even love to be a teacher, or a leader rather, in the local church. In fact, I would suggest that we should be praying that all of us in the church would become people who are so competent in the scriptures that we would be eager to teach one another and instruct one another and share God's word accurately with the world around us, making disciples of all nations. The unique problem here, as I already mentioned, is going to be one of motive and of a lack of qualifications among those who are seeking to be teachers. Now, obviously, the role of a teacher is still a prestigious one in our, in our society. Um, teachers of all types are looked on with honor and respect, as they ought to be. Whether you're a school teacher or a professor in a university, or maybe you're an instructor in your field, in, in your profession, these are roles that are still looked on with a lot of respect and a lot of honor. And that's still true in Christian circles for those who are teachers of God's word. It's not surprising then that in churches today, there are still many people who are attracted to the position for less than godly reasons. And so James's warning is just as needed in today's churches as it was in the churches to whom this letter was originally addressed 2,000 years ago. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And he's going to give a warning. He says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now it's true that every person is going to give an account of their life before God in eternity. When we die, we will all give an account. And although as Christians, we're not going to be condemned because of our sins, because our sin was paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross in our place. So although we're not going to be condemned for our sins, our fruit will still be inspected. And our motives are still going to be scrutinized. And we are going to receive reward or suffer loss as a result of that inspection. Teachers, however, according to verse 1, will undergo a stricter judgment. This thought should be terrifying for anyone who aspires to the office of a teacher or a leader in a local church. Why should it be terrifying? Well, because as James says, we all stumble in many ways. Notice how James, this great apostle, this great leader of the early church, this great teacher of the early church, includes himself in that assessment. He doesn't say you all stumble in many ways. He says, look, we, including himself, we all stumble in many ways. So for somebody to be in the position of teaching, knowing that they're going to be judged with greater strictness, it's a terrifying thought. I mean, after all, it wouldn't matter much if teachers received a stricter judgment, if they were perfect and there was nothing by which they would be judged. But that's not the case. Teachers, leaders in the church, are sinners too. We all stumble in many ways. And the place where our stumbling is most common and most constant is in our words, in our speech. 
And herein lies the great danger of being a teacher. Teachers are in the business of words. Teachers are communicators. Teachers are speakers. And according to this passage, words are the most constant cause of our stumbling. So as James here offers this warning to would-be teachers, he provides some of the most thoughtful teaching in the Bible related to our speech, related to our words. And the first thing that he helps us to see is this, the power of our words. The power of our words. Look again at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect or mature or complete man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Our words are the hardest thing to control. I would bet that if you created a list of all of the things that you've done in your life that you regret, and then you created another list of all of the things that you've said in your life that you regret, I would bet you list number two is way, 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 way longer than list number one. Because the fact of the matter is, our words are very, very difficult to control. And the majority of the mistakes, the majority of the sins that we commit are coming out of our mouths and not really done with our actions, our hands and our feet. How many times have you thought to yourself, boy, I wish I could take that thing back that I said. Or man, I really wish I didn't say it that way. Or at that, at that time, at that moment, I wish I would have waited. Or I wish I could unsend the email that I sent. Newsflash, you can't unsend the email that you sent. Or the text message. Or the tweet. Or the comment that you posted on somebody's post. You can't take those things back. And so many times in our lives and in our experience, we're going, oh, I wish I could. I wish I could get it back. But what is that showing us? That we've lost control of our tongue. We've said things out of turn. And what James is teaching us here in this text is that if a person has control over their speech, if, pers- if a person has self-control over their tongue, everything else is a breeze. Everything else is going to fall in line. This is the illustrations that he's using to unpack this. He uses these two analogies, a bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder on a ship. And his point there is this, if you control the bit, or if you're in control of the rudder, you actually are in in control of the entire vessel. You've got it all. So in the same way, if you're in control of your tongue, you are in control of the whole vessel or your whole body. Anyone who can master their words will have no trouble mastering everything else. Now, the power of our words is not only seen in the strength that it takes to control them, but also in the great uh, force that they can exert in the lives of other people. This is why in verse 5 he says that although the tongue is small, it can boast of great things. It can have insane impact. 
A single statement that you make or that somebody makes to you can radically impact the entire course and direction of your life. Now, many of you know who Dwayne Wade is. He's a basketball player. He's a three-time NBA champion, a 13-time All-Star. And Dwayne Wade retired last year from basketball. And around the All-Star break, um, he had kind of like a retirement party and had a lot of people there. And they were basically just honoring him for his contribution to the league. And of course, his family was there. And as different key people in his life were honoring him and saying nice things about him, his dad got up. And among other things, his dad looked at Dwayne Wade, who I think is 37 at the time of this. So this is a grown man. And he looks at him and he says to his son, I'm proud of you. And Dwayne got extremely emotional. And he looked at his dad and he said this, I've worked my whole life to hear you say those words. Just four words spoken out of the right mouth in the right moment were so powerful, in that case, so life-giving to this man who, from worldly standards, had achieved so much. But evidently, his dad had been withholding those words of affirmation for all these years. And look at how that drove him in his work. But our words don't only have the potential to impact a person's life. Words, as you know, can change the course of history. Patrick Henry's famous words, give me liberty or give me death, emboldened the timid American colonies to declare independence from Great Britain. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous words, I have a dream, reverberated across the nation and brought favorable exposure to his movement and eventually helped secure the passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. Although the tongue is small, it boasts of great things. Our words are powerful. They're the hardest thing to control, and they're the most powerful tool at your disposal. Well, after helping us to see the power of our words, James wants us to also see the destructive potential of our words. Because anything that is powerful can do great good and it can also do great harm. So he wants us to see in verses 5 and all the way through 8 the destructive potential of our words. He says again, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The same nuclear energy that can power an entire city can also destroy that very same city. Because your words are powerful, because my words are powerful, there is massive destructive potential in our speech. Notice that James no longer likens our tongue to something, like a bridle or a rudder. Now he directly calls it something. He calls it a fire. He says, your tongue is a fire. Now no one knows for sure how the Thomas fire began, 
But some eyewitnesses reported seeing sparks that flew off of a power line. There was an explosion and the sparks shot off of that and ignited the brush around it, which launched the Thomas fire, which at that point I believe was the most destructive fire we had in California history. Our words, James tells us, can be exactly like that initial spark. Little fire, little spark coming off of that power line. But once it hit and once it ignited that brush, it destroyed the entire forest and it destroyed many homes down in Ventura and even up near our area. He says in verse 8 that the tongue is a restless evil and that it's full of deadly poison. Like a venomous snake, destructive speech lunges out of our mouths and it strikes another person with a potentially lethal bite. We have to understand this. That our words, when we misuse them, when we participate in sinful speech, can be destructive to other people. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe somebody at some point in your life told you that you were ugly. And even to this day, you've never believed that you are pretty or handsome. Maybe somebody told you somewhere along your development that you were stupid, that you would never amount to anything. And to this day, you set very low expectations for yourself. Maybe somebody promised you that they'd be there for you, and then they weren't. And even to this day, you struggle with trusting other people, and it hinders so much of what you could do in your life. Our words can permanently damage somebody, permanently alter somebody in negative ways. The destructive potential is enormous. And we should pause and consider how this potential is magnified for those who are in roles of teaching in the community of faith. When you're teaching, you are speaking in a single moment to the entire community of faith that is being gathered, the whole church being gathered. And you have the power to instantaneously spark a wildfire that could do great damage to the whole community. I mean, imagine if I were to preach a false gospel on a Sunday morning. Or imagine if I were to grossly misrepresent God on a Sunday morning. Or if I were to trash or slander an individual's reputation on a Sunday morning. It could be a spark that would set the forest ablaze. But your words could do it as well. Might not happen as quickly. Sure, the teacher can ignite that forest fire in a single statement, in an instant. But any of our words have this potential. It might just take them a little bit longer to travel throughout the whole forest. It might be consuming the acreage a little bit more slowly than the teachers might. Through things like gossip or slander or sowing discord or creating division in the community or lying about one another, we are igniting those sparks that can work their way through the community and wreak havoc within the church and within our families and within our other social networks. And notice what James is saying here. He's saying that whenever you and I engage in destructive speech, we're aligning ourselves with the kingdom of darkness. And he says that we're operating out of a world of unrighteousness. Think of it this way. The devil is a liar. The devil is a deceiver. The devil is a manipulator. The devil is a slanderer. The devil is an accuser. The devil loves to see division and discord rather than peace and unity and harmony. 
And so this is the kind of speech that Satan participates in. The sort of speech that tries to undermine our trust in other people. Isn't this what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden? He comes in with his speech and he begins questioning the goodness of God. And he begins inserting false narratives and creating division between human beings and God. And then ultimately even between Adam and Eve. This is what the enemy does. And we need to understand that when we participate in this kind of speech sinful speech, destructive speech, we are in that moment aligning ourselves on Team Satan rather than showing our true identity as members of Team Jesus. This is huge. This is heavy. James says it this way, that the tongue that participates in those activities is set on fire by hell. Verse 6. We're seeing where that kind of speech is actually coming from. And it's not coming from the Lord. I think as I was reflecting on my own life experience and just thinking about my words and the ways that I use my words, the conclusion I was coming to was I'm just way too careless with my words. I'm way too quick to say things. I I don't consider long enough. I don't pause long enough and, and, and think about these words. I just say things. And it's so helpful that James is 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 giving us a deeper understanding of the power and the potential of every single word that we speak. In fact, earlier in his epistle, remember, he said that we should be swift to listen and slow to speak. That we should be a people who are constantly pausing and considering the words that are going to come out of our mouth and what impact that they might have and whether they're true, whether they're helpful. My previous pastor, Pastor Greg Laurie, used to say that when you're considering what to say or whether you should say something, you could use the acronym THINK. THINK. So the acronym THINK, T standing for, is it true? Is what I'm about to say true? If you fail that test, don't say it. The next, the H there, is it helpful? Is what I'm saying actually going to help this person or help this situation? If not, probably doesn't need to be said. Next, the I, is it inspiring? In other words, is it it the type of speech that is going to bring people down? Or is it the type of speech that will inspire the right sort of responses and actions out of people? The in, is it necessary? We talked a couple weeks ago about how uh, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. So, so much... Wisdom is demonstrated in just restraining our speech, even if it's not evil speech. It's just, is it necessary? Do I have to say this? Do I have to post this on the internet? Do I have to send this out as a tweet? Or do I need to say this to this person in this moment? Is it necessary? If not, maybe I should just remain silent. And then the K, is it kind? Is it kind? There's probably more that could be said about evaluating our speech. But this is definitely a helpful place to start. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Our words are powerful. And the wrong words can be destructive. We have to be considerate. We have to be a people who by God's grace are being trained to be slow to speak. Considerate before we speak. Well, this brings us to the final section of our text this morning. And the reality of our words. Point number three, the reality of of our words. Look at verse 9. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. When we use destructive speech, we are contradicting our walks as followers of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are professing that God is our Father, that Jesus is our Lord, and then if we are cursing people or being destructive to people, then we're, we're cursing people that are made in the likeness of God. We see that in verse 9. James plainly says, these things ought not to be so. How can blessing and cursing come from the same mouth? How can we bless and honor God as our Father and then trash and destroy our brothers and sisters? These things ought not to be so. James here uses this one final flurry of illustrations to drive home his point about our words. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? What is his point? Here's the point. The source determines the substance. The root determines the fruit. Again, the source, if this is a freshwater pond or a spring, fresh water's coming out. If it's a saltwater pond or spring, salt water's coming out. So the source determines the substance. The root determines the fruit. If you plant apple seeds in the ground, you're never going to pick oranges off of that tree. Okay, the root determines the fruit. In other words, our words not only say a lot for us, our words say a lot about us. Our words are the great revealer of the condition of our hearts. What we say on a consistent basis, the nature of our speech, is a clear revealer of the condition of our hearts. Family, nobody was clearer about this than Jesus himself. Here's Jesus in Matthew 15, 18. He says, but what comes out of the mouth, your words, proceeds from the heart. The words that are coming out proceed from your heart. Or in Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus uses the tree example. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is so clear here. The things that we say are revealing who we actually are. Who our God is. What our values are. All of that is coming out in the words that we use on a daily basis. And for James, the fact that people were jockeying for leadership positions in the church who were so destructive with their speech, meant that those people were disqualified from that position. 
After all, their words are merely symptomatic of their heart condition. So the question before all of us this morning as we close is, what is the condition of your heart based on the content of your words? What is the condition of your heart based on the content of your words? Now, as you answer that, let me offer one qualifier from our text this morning. In verse 2, we were reminded, we all stumble in many ways. So what we're doing, what we should be looking for as we're analyzing our own speech and therefore analyzing our own hearts is not perfect speech because we all stumble in many ways. What we should be looking for is a pattern of speech. A pattern of speech. A pattern of speech that is true and helpful and inspiring and necessary and kind. Or to put it biblically, a pattern of speech in line with Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. It is the pattern of your speech in your life, one where it's not marked by corrupting speech, violent, angry speech, untrue speech, slanderous speech, gossip, but instead that the pattern of the speech in your life is consistently pouring out grace on people. That if your words are like a spring that is bubbling over, that what is flowing into the lives of everyone around you is not a poisonous snake bite, but it's grace flowing out of your mouth into their lives. That it's edifying, that it's building people up around you. Last week we talked about how our works show our faith. Church, nowhere is this more true than in our speech. The way that we speak on a regular basis, again, is revealing the content or a condition of our heart. So if this morning your speech has a pattern of being healthy and God-honoring, praise God, because that's indicative of a healthy heart. But if your speech this morning has a pattern of being destructive rather, and unhelpful and untrue, that's a cause for concern. It's indicative of a very unhealthy heart. Perhaps a heart that's never experienced the grace of God. And that should leave you very concerned. Be concerned. But don't despair. Because there's hope for your words. Because there's hope for your heart. About a thousand years before Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem, the psalmist David cried out in desperate prayer in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David was aware that he needed God to act in his heart. God, you need to create in me a heart that is pleasing to you. I can't just manufacture this on my own. So God, would you create this new heart in me? Hundreds of years later, God promised through the prophet Ezekiel a day where he would answer David's prayer By not only giving his people clean hearts, but brand new ones. This is Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart 
of flesh. God said, a new heart is coming. I'm going to give you what you actually need to obey me from the heart and to live a life that pleases me and to have words that actually please me and benefit your neighbor. And this hope of a new heart and this promise that God would provide it came true in and through God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, Jesus is standing up at this great feast and he makes this startling announcement. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, which is what it means to drink according to Jesus, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to say that when Jesus speaks of this living water, he's speaking of the Spirit who would come and dwell in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. And when the Spirit comes and dwells in our hearts, he makes us brand new from the inside out, giving us a brand new heart. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, what we need most fundamentally is not just a new vocabulary. What we need is a new heart. We need the Holy Spirit to cause our hearts to be born again and to start operating in our hearts so that over time the Spirit can begin transforming our hearts and our desires and our beliefs and our attitudes and from that our actions and our words doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it takes a lifetime. But if the Spirit of God is in your life, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and you've been born again, the Spirit is helping you throughout your life to bring your speech in alignment with your convictions and with what's true about you as a child of God. So again, as we're assessing this morning, we're not looking for perfect speech, but the pattern of our speech. And if your pattern is one of destructive, unhealthy speech, perhaps this morning you need to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus and allow him to not only give you new words, but allow him to give you a brand new heart. Because that's what the message of the gospel is all about. Jesus died 2,000 years ago on that cross for your sins so you could be forgiven and so that you could be brought into relationship with God and God himself, the Holy Spirit, could take up residence in your life and conform you into the image of Jesus. And we have that by faith in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess together this morning are many, many failures related to our speech. As we read a text like this, as we hear a message like this, every one of us can just retrace even our last week of life and probably see ourselves in so many different situations, maybe sitting next to a coworker and laughing at something we shouldn't be laughing at, or maybe standing in our kitchen saying something to our kids or our spouse that we shouldn't have said. Or saying something even in the church family that should have never come out of our mouths. 
And so, Lord, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we stumble in many ways. But this morning, we once again confess our faith in Christ. Trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone as the only way that we could ever be declared righteous before you. None of us who are Christians this morning are suggesting that we are your children because of what we bring to the table. We are all confessing this morning that the only reason we are your children is because of your grace and your love and your forgiveness that was purchased through Christ's death and your righteousness that becomes ours by faith through Christ. So this morning, even though we're convicted over our sin, we celebrate our status as sons and daughters in Christ. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to live out that reality. After all, this is what James has been calling for in this letter, that we would be consistent in our lives with what we believe in our hearts. So Lord, this morning as we think about our speech, we pray that all of us would be people who are slow to speak, that we would consider the words that come out of our mouths, that if there are habits of destructive, sinful speech, that this morning we would acknowledge that these things are actually coming from the evil one, that these are not coming from you, that we would repent and turn away from these patterns and these practices, and that we would rely on the Holy Spirit to help us to speak the right way, to share words that are edifying and will build up and will infuse grace upon our hearers. So Lord, help us to work in these areas. And Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for any others who teach in our church that Lord, you would continue to give us guarded speech, that you would continue to give us as leaders in the church accuracy as we study your word, that we would always have wholesome, truthful, God-honoring speech that builds up this beautiful family of God here at Apostles Church. So Lord, we pray that you would do this work in our, in our church family and in each of our own hearts so that you would be glorified through us and so that we would serve the common good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.